to us. Thanks for allowing us to meet again and study this very important topic, this topic of the kingdom and just seeing how it goes from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And there's uh, such an importance to it. Um, When we understand the kingdom, we understand so much about what you have had written for us. We understand the context. And Lord, it gives us a picture of the future. And we think of all the terrible things that are happening now around the world. We think of the turmoil, not just in the Middle East, but even in Europe with Ukraine and Russia and even in the Far East with China and Taiwan. And uh, Lord, we know that your word says there's going to be a time in the future when your son is ruling over all of these places and all of these nations will submit to him. And so we're thankful that we can see what you're going to do in the future. And it gives us comfort uh, that gives us understanding, Lord, and it should motivate us to uh, share with others what your word says about these things and uh, to make sure those around us have a saving relationship with you. So, Father, be honored and exalted in our study tonight. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is where we're beginning this evening. Last week, I gave you a homework assignment to read these psalms, jot a few things down that might be something about the kingdom from these psalms. And uh, I'm not going to ask you to share those. I just wanted you to go through the exercise of looking at it yourself, uh, thinking about it. And um, you can see what you maybe wrote down or if you can remember and what we talk about here this evening. And uh, so let's take a look at this psalm, Psalm 45, 17 verses. So I'm just going to read down through these verses. I'm going to emphasize a few things as I go. But you follow along in your Bible. Uh, To the chief musician set to the lilies. So that's a that's a uh, musical arrangement. Um, We have no idea what it is, but it's a song And it had a score that went along with these words. We only know what the words are. A contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. Okay, so that's number one. Concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. So notice that this is distinguishing between the king and God. God has blessed you, the king, forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one. 
That's another messianic type of reference, Almighty One. With your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So we got some throne language there, kingdom language, scepter, these things. Verse 7, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with Myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Afir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Uh, look at the last part of that verse. Worship him. Worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven, woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your son, instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes, princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all, all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever. Now, there's several references here to things related to king kingdom, some type of kingly status. But there are two things in particular which point us to the fact that this king that is being spoken about is not merely a human king. Verse 11, we see that this king is to be worshipped. Okay? So no king of Israel would think that it's right for him to be worshipped. No Jew, understanding their Bible, would think that it's right to worship the king. And then verse 17 the king is to be praised. Look at the very last line. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Another idea closely related to worship. Uh, therefore, the king, who's the subject of this psalm, is not some random descendant of David who sits on the throne of Israel. But rather, he is described as... One blessed forever, a mighty one. This is the word gibor, often used in the description of God, mighty one. One who serves as part of God's 
kingdom, one who is anointed by God and one whose sons will rule the earth. So chapter 45 is it's messianic in one sense, but but this is pointing towards the kingdom. This special one who's a king that's going to rule. And, of course, this is all pointing towards the future. And um, one one of the things you remember about some of these psalms that are called royal psalms and things like that is very often they're messianic, they're prophetic, they're prophesying. And the the impact that that prophecy had on the kings of that day is to say, this is how God's perfect chosen king is going to rule. Therefore, my rule should be like his. Okay, so when I rule here on earth during my time, during my lifespan, my rule should line up with this this rule. It should be the, the same. Okay. So now turn to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. I'm going to try to move pretty rapidly through these. I'm not going to read this psalm. But I just want to note uh, just a few things. Uh, So this psalm, Psalm 50, emphasizes that God's rule or God's kingdom is over the earth. So it's physical and earthly. This, of course, does not dismiss the fact that God's rule goes beyond the physical aspects of the universe. But rather, the psalm gives emphasis to the fact that God's rule is both over the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And so as you read this psalm, one of the things you come away with is the is, is how it's related to God's rule, God's kingdom in a concrete way over the, the physical earth people. OK, so, so that's Psalm 50. Now let's turn to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Let me read this one, and um, I'll emphasize some things here as I read. Psalm 72. Notice that the uh, superscription says it's a psalm of Solomon. Okay, so Solomon wrote this psalm. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure Throughout all generations. That's another, it's a long way to say forever. 
He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him. His enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. The pre- the pre- and precious shall be their blood in his sight, and he shall live. And the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruits shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall Be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So this is not just an idealistic presentation of what Israel's kings were to be like. It is a description of the rule of the coming perfect king. Notice verse 1 projects into the future beyond Solomon. It says, your righteousness to the king's son. Not just to the king, but the king's son. So it's projecting into the future. In verse 2, we see that the king has perfect judgment. Perfect judgment. In verse 3, we see that his reign is characterized by a time of peace. In verse 5, this speaks of the eternality of the king's rule, as long as the sun and moon endure through all generations. Verse 7 speaks of prosperity and peace, again, as a description of this rule. It says in verse 8, verse 8, his dominion will be over the entire earth, from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So over everything. Verse 9, he's going to conquer his enemies. He's not going to have any enemies. He'll defeat them all. Verse 11, all kings and nations will serve him. Verse 17, all nations shall call him 
blessed. So even if it's possible to think that maybe this is referring to Solomon, certainly there's some descriptions here that would not fit Solomon's reign. Okay, Uh, not all kingdoms served Solomon. Not all nations called him blessed. They probably called him other things, but not blessed, you know. So verses 8, 11, and 17 indicate what might be taken as exhortations to any king of Israel, but that are actually statements about the coming perfect king. So again, we see kingdom details in this chapter. Now let's go to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, this is a longer psalm. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I'm going to read some significant portions of it. 52 verses long. So this psalm can be divided into five sections based on the word Selah. Okay, so section one goes from verse one to verse four. Section two is the longest section. It goes from verse five to verse thirty seven. Section three goes from verse thirty eight to verse forty five. Section four goes from verse forty six to verse forty eight. And then the last section is verse 49 through 52. So, you know, you can see that in your Bible. All you got to do is find that word Selah. And there you have your sections, how it's divided up. Okay, let me uh, just note some things here. Uh, look at verse 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my servant David. Right? So right there in verse 2, we already see that uh, David is the elect one of God. Okay? He's been chosen. He has been elected by God. Okay? So I have made a covenant. I have sworn to my chosen, to my servant David. Okay. Uh, so we know right away that this is going to be something speaking about the Davidic covenant. All right. And look at verse four. Your seed will be established forever and build up your throne to all generations. So God says, I'm going to establish your seed forever and I'm going to build your throne up to all generations. So that's kind of. Verse 3 kind of is a, you know, a synopsis, synopsis of um, the Davidic covenant. So, and this first section is the announcement of the Davidic covenant. The announcement of the Davidic covenant. Now, in verses 5 through 37, we see here that this part of the psalm is a praise to God for his faithfulness to the Davidic covenant. 
for his faithfulness to the Davidic covenant. Um, Look down to verse 11. Verse 11. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world in all its fullness, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. So this is talking about God's rule, what belongs to God, what falls under his power, everything. Verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Okay, so now this is definitely picking up on kingdom language, your throne. So righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So the rule of God is going to be characterized by righteousness and justice. Verse 19. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David. It's okay. Now we know we're back to talking about David again, right? So in the first part, first section, section one, verses one through four, the announcement of the Davidic covenant. Section two, the psalmist is praising God for his faithfulness to the Davidic covenant. And he's telling how great God is. This is how great God is. All this belongs to you. This is what your kingdom's about. And then in verses 19 and 20, he comes back and says he's clearly talking about David again. Then then you spoke in a vision to your holy one. Now, who's the holy one here? David. My servant, David. I have exalted one chosen from the people. Again, that election language there. Chosen David. I found my servant David, verse 20, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. Now, that word anointed there is the word, it's the verb form of Messiah. Okay? Smear. That's what it means. It means smear. So this is the word Messiah. Or related to the word Messiah. Verse 21. With whom my hand shall be established, also my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and and in my name his horn shall be exalted. And I will set his hand over the sea. And his right hand over the rivers, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn. Isn't that an interesting phrase? How can you make someone your firstborn? Not something you get to do, is it? Right? No, you don't. You don't make somebody your firstborn, either they're your firstborn or not. Right? So this is something else that's happening here. So this terminology of firstborn is not talking about, uh, you know, 
the first descendant, your first offspring. This is talking about somebody who's of utmost and ultimate importance. So I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep well, my mercy I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. So that's there's a lot of kingdom language in here. Now drop down to verse 33. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, I will not utterly take from him. Nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever. His throne as the, thr- uh, as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. So that's the that's the bulk of the uh, kingdom aspects there. Um, and in the verses thirty eight through forty five, let me just summarize. Here we see a plea to God to be faithful to his covenant because it looks like God hasn't been faithful to his covenant. It looks like he's forgotten his covenant. Okay, so this is a plea to God. Be faithful to your covenant. This is what, you know, oftentimes what you find in the Psalms, especially these personal Psalms, is the psalmist will say, God, you said this. This is who you are. Or sometimes that's reversed. It starts out by saying, God, this is who you are. And this is what you've said. Things don't look like they're going the way that you said they're going. And so you get all types of depressing language and language that seems to be questioning God. But that's not what the the psalmist is not questioning God because you have to get to the resolution. Which comes at the end of the psalm. And in this case, we see in the fourth section, verses 46 through 48, that the question goes from God, are you going to remember your covenant with David? To God, when will you remember your covenant? Verse 46 starts out, how long? So that's a question of when. When? So, so do you see how that shifts? The psalmist is saying, you gave this covenant to David. This is how great you are. You are so faithful to this covenant. Then you get to the third section and it says, boy, God, it doesn't look like you're being faithful to the covenant you made to David. Okay. But he moves from that. He moves from that and, and just says, so when are, is this going to be fulfilled? When is this covenant going to be fulfilled? And he ends with an expression of trusting the Lord. Okay. 
And oftentimes in the Psalms like this, what you find is at the end, the resolution is the, the psalmist says, I'm going to trust the Lord or I'm praising the Lord. That's what he says. And basically he's saying it doesn't matter what is happening, even though it doesn't look good for me, I'm going to trust the Lord. So like verse 49, Lord, where are your former where are your former loving kindnesses, which you swore to David in your truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen, amen. So even then, he ends on this note of blessed be the Lord. Okay, not, you know, I can't trust the Lord. Okay, so we also see here that with the psalmist speaking here at the end, he also includes somebody other than David. So he says there, Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses which you swore to David in your truth. So you talk about something that happened in the past. So this is beyond David here. And so there's a lot of uh, kingdom ideas that are mentioned here. And uh, this, this is all about the um, Davidic covenant. And so the Davidic covenant, when this psalm was written... Had not been fulfilled. So you get the question about will it, when's it going to be fulfilled? And of course, we can't separate the Davidic covenant from the fact that David's seed is the one who is going to be fulfilling or receive the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Okay, we're, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more, but in a different passage. Um, I think that's. Yeah, in a different passage. Okay, let's um, go from Psalm 89 to Psalm 93. Psalm 93. So, and, and I'll just read this psalm. It's only five verses long. And I want you to note here how this psalm is emphasizing the physicality of the Lord's kingdom. Now, it's, it's, not, it's not just some spiritual realm. It's not just a rule in the hearts and minds of people. Okay? Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He, is girded, he has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are everlasting. Floods have lifted up, O Lord. Floods have lifted up their voice. Floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. Your testimonies are very sure, 
Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. So get these physical words here. Floods, waves, seas, throne, things like that. You know, so this is expressing the physicality, I think, of his rule, his kingdom. The Lord reigns. Okay, the Lord functions as king. That's what the word reigns means there. He's. He is ruling as a king. Okay. Um, Turn over a few more pages to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And let's focus in on verse 19. Verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven... And his kingdom rules over all. So this psalm speaks of the nature and character of the Lord's reign over his kingdom. Verse 19 here emphasizes that the Lord's throne is in heaven, but his rule is over all. That would include the earth. Okay. So again, we get this kingdom idea that's here. Maybe not directly connected to the messianic idea, but we see the Lord's kingdom here. Now flip over a few more pages to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Okay, this is a Psalm of David. Let me read it. Uh, The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand till I, the Lord, make your Adonai enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You, Adonai, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. So notice here that the Lord God speaks to David's master, his Adonai, his master. Okay, and so you kind of work that out in your mind. Well, who's David's master? You know, who's David's master? Hmm. That's that's a tough one. Doesn't say here exactly, but uh, whoever it is, it's going to be ruling. OK, 
okay, according to this psalm. So uh, the Lord God, Yahweh, says to David's master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then it says in verse 2, the Lord, Yahweh, the one who was just speaking, shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Now, if the strength of David's master comes out of Zion, where do you think the master is located? Zion, right? Now, Zion is another name for what city? Jerusalem. Okay, so the Lord shall send a rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. I think that's sort of just an expression that he's not going to have any enemies because nobody's going to be able to, nobody's going to be resisting him. And is in verse three interesting as well. Your people, take this people you rule shall be volunteers. Yeah, they're volunteers. In the day of your power and the beauties of holiness from the womb of your, the morning, you have the dew of your youth. Then notice uh, that verse 4 says that this one who is ruling, right? He's ruling in verse 2. But he's a priest in verse 4. And uh, David's prophecy here includes how this can be. Because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Levi or Aaron. Okay, he's the order of Melchizedek. So. We have this king, this ruler, who is also a priest. And it says, the Lord, has the word Adonai again, is at your right hand. He, the Lord, Adonai, he shall execute kings. Judge among the nations. Kill a lot of people. He's going to fill the place up with dead bodies. Execute the heads of many countries. And drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. So, so again, this is, a, this is a psalm that's quoted in several places in the New Testament. And uh, in the New Testament, the, those writers specifically name who this person is that's being talked about. They specifically connected to the Lord Jesus. Okay? So, this is not a psalm about David. It can't be about David. All right? So that's Psalm 110. Let's move on to Psalm 132. Eighteen verses long. 
I want to focus on verses 10 through 18. Okay, verses 10 through 18. Verse 10. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Uh, let Let me phrase that differently. For the sake of your servant David, don't turn your face away from your Messiah. Okay, that anointed, your anointed, that's the word Messiah. Your Messiah. Okay. Um, so when it says, for the sake of your servant David, it's, it's probably a reference to the Davidic covenant. You know, it says, for the sake of David, for the sake of the Davidic uh, covenant, the covenant that has made with David. Don't turn your face away from your Messiah, your anointed one. Now, a question is, who, who is that referring to? Is that referring to David or is it referring to someone else? It could be a reference to David himself or to David's exalted descendant per the Davidic covenant. In either case, David, as the one to whom God made the covenant, is in a sense messianic. Um, He is messianic either because... He's a prefigurement of the Messiah as the one after God's own heart, or he's the one through whom the Messiah will eventually come. So he's messianic in that in that sense. I don't think it is talking about David. I think it's talk it's an unnamed Messiah here. Okay. Verse eleven. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. So the Lord is going to be faithful. He is trustworthy. This is an expression of certainty. You can count on it. Certainty. Uh, And he will honor the promise that he made from David. He's not going to turn away from keeping this promise. Now look at the second part of verse 11 down through verse 12. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. So this passage here is kind of a paraphrase of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, where we have the giving of the Davidic covenant. It says in 2 Samuel, it says, uh, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. That's like the fruit of your body. Uh, who will come from your, from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And it goes on and it says, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with a rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. So this is very similar language to that passage. So, um, you know, if you put cross references in your Bible, you would write down Second Samuel chapter seven, verses 12 through 14 here. But notice 
in these verses, it redirects our attention away from David himself to the fruit of his body. So that will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. So now we're going to move away from David. Now let's think about the fruit of his body. In verse 12, the promise to David's sons is in relation to the Mosaic Covenant. Notice what he says. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them. Okay, so this is a covenant that has to be kept, right? Is the Davidic covenant a covenant that has to be kept? Does David have to keep it? No. David doesn't have to do anything to keep the Davidic covenant. God's the only one that has to do anything to keep that covenant. But here, he's talking about a, co- a covenant, and he has the word testimony. So when you get those two words together, it almost always means a mosaic covenant. So he says covenant, and this is a covenant they have to keep. Well, the only covenant that they've got to keep is the covenant that God gave to them on Mount Sinai when they were in the wilderness. That's the mosaic covenant. That's the covenant they agreed to keep. And so essentially, he's saying here, if they keep the uh, Mosaic Covenant, they will experience the blessings that are attached to the Davidic Covenant. They're going to stay on the throne. That doesn't mean that just any old descendant of David, as long as he's a good Jewish guy, is the fulfillment of the Davidic Covenant. That's not what it means here. So I, I would just take this as... It's sort of like the, you know, with the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant gets passed on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then all of Israel. This is similar to that. It's not exactly the same, but it's the idea that, you know, if your sons will be obedient to the Mosaic covenant, then I'm including them in the Davidic covenant type of thing. Okay, Um, so did this happen? Historically speaking, did the sons of David obey the covenant of God? No, he didn't. They didn't obey the covenant of God. So, while the Messiah must be a descendant of David, right? That's a non-negotiable. He's got to be a descendant of David. There is no guarantee that the Messiah will be a descendant of any of the other Davidic kings. So as Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 16 points out, the Davidic kings ended with Jeconiah or Jehoiachin. It ended there. That's where it ended. No more Davidic kings after that. So those named after that were of the line of David, and that genealogy, they're of the line of David, but none were kings. None were kings. Furthermore, when you look at the genealogies of Jesus and Matthew and Luke, and you compare them, there are dramatic differences. Okay? Dramatic differences. And I think these distinctions and differences only show. I mean, we can try to come up with all kinds of things. Why would this happen this way? Why would it be that way? I think the, one, the differences are showing is 
Jesus was a descendant of David. David. And it doesn't matter who's between him and David, as long as they are all related to David. It doesn't matter if they're kings. Okay? So, um, I did a little exercise this week. And uh, I laid that, those genealogies out side by side. And, uh, of course, they go in opposite order, right? Those genealogies go in the opposite order. So Matthew's genealogy starts with Abraham, goes down to Jesus. Luke's genealogy starts with Joseph. Um, so Mary's husband. And then goes all the way to Adam. So when you take them and you put them in the same order, okay, put them in the same order, start them with Abraham, uh, you find that Abraham to David are an exact match. Abraham to David, exact match. After that, there are no matches until you come to Joseph. Okay. Jesus' stepfather. So isn't that interesting? So what do you you know, so how do you make it out? Why is all these differences? And my understanding is the differences don't matter. The only thing that matters is each one of these people, from King David to Joseph, are of the family of David. That's all that matters. Doesn't matter if they're a king. There's guys in here who are named who aren't kings. Doesn't matter if they're a king. The only thing this is showing is that Jesus is related to David. That's the most important thing. Okay? So, uh, what verse was that? What verse are we on? I got like five pages of genealogy here, so I got <laughs> So that's verses 11 through 12. Let's go to 13 through 18. Verses 13 through 18. So there's a switch that takes place right here. Verse 13. We're going to switch from talking about a person to talking about a place now. So we're switching from this person to talking about a place. So switching from the person of the fruit of David's body, this future Messiah, to now we're going to talk about a place. It says in verse 13... For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. So Zion, another name for Jerusalem, is spoken as the place that God has chosen. He's elected Jerusalem where he is going to dwell. Now, whatever the exact setting is of this psalm, and we're not sure, we're not precisely sure, it's a psalm of ascent. It seems like it's set in either the exilic or the post-exilic period. But whatever it is, it's pointing to the future. And so God is talking about dwelling in Zion. But we know that with the Babylonian captivity, what happened? God removed himself from Jerusalem. He removed himself from Zion. And according to Ezekiel... When's the Lord going to come back to Jerusalem and once again dwell in Jerusalem? It's in the kingdom. It's in the millennium. 
when that happens, what else has to be in Jerusalem? I mean, obviously Jerusalem's got to exist, but what's got to be there? Temple. Temple's got to be there. Okay? So this is, this is God's, says he's, this is my dwelling place. I've chosen Jerusalem to be the place where I'm going to dwell. Now, does that sound like it's a heavenly scene or an earthly scene? Pretty earthly to me. <laughs> Pretty earthly. Verse 14 says, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I want to live in Jerusalem. And it's my resting place forever. This is a place where I'm going to dwell forever. Now, if forever means forever, it means there can't be any gaps from the time he begins to dwell there to the time he uh, continues on. You can't have a gap there. So this has to be talking about sometime in the future. The Lord's not dwelling in Jerusalem today. He did not dwell in Jerusalem during the exile or the post-exilic period. Okay, he, That's not where he dwelt. And he certainly couldn't be dwelling in Jerusalem after AD 70 because there's no temple. But he says, when I come to dwell, I'm going to dwell there forever. This is going to be my uh, home that I'm going to stay in forever. Verse 15. I will abundantly bless her. That's the city of Jerusalem. Bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. So the Lord's going to make Jerusalem prosperous and he's going to be the provider of the inhabitants of the city. Even the poorest are going to be supplied by the Lord. Verse 16, I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. This is other ways that the Lord is providing for Jerusalem. It's going to be a time of gladness and celebration. By the way, the mention of the priests here also indicates to us that the temple is functioning. It's not The temple isn't just a house. It is a house for God, but it's functioning. That's why you have priests. Priests make the temple function. Verse 17. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed, my Messiah. So in this verse, the horn of David and my Messiah are a reference to the same person. In the parallelism, this is the same person. Well, it's not David. This individual that's being spoken of here isn't David. It's this future Messiah. Verse 18. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. So uh, the enemies of God's Messiah are going to be defeated and conquered. And uh, the crown or the rule of the Messiah is going to flourish. I think that speaks of his complete domination of the earth. So there's many aspects to the kingdom and the king that are mentioned in this psalm. The connection to David and Jerusalem are clear. It is equally clear that the state of the city of Jerusalem and the, and the kingdom are such that it has to be future. It can't, it doesn't fit any historical time. It certainly doesn't fit now. So this is 
future, yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecy. It would defy comprehension to suggest that the kingdom, which is clearly being talked about here, is in any way just a heavenly thing or a purely spiritual thing. The reference to Jerusalem makes the kingdom earthy and concrete. Okay, let's keep moving. Psalm 147. I think that's my last one I'm going to do. So I think I put some other stuff down on there, but I changed Psalm 147. This will be our last one. 20 verses here. I just need to point out one verse to you. Okay, this this is sort of the controlling verse. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. I'll just start reading in verse 1. Um, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. Verse 2. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. So if this psalm is a recognition of actual, factual events, And it is. These events take place in the future. These are future events. Verse 2, again. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. This verse is particularly significant as it speaks of building Jerusalem and gathering the outcasts of Israel. This word outcasts, is, I would call it, a semi-technical word in that it's used in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 and 4. Why don't we just turn back there? Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 and verse 4. And it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God drives you. That word drives is connected to this word outcast. Okay. The the word outcast, I believe, is a verb actually in Psalm 47, 2. And it's the word to drive out. Okay, now look at verse 4. If any of you are driven out to the furthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will bring you. So here we have both words that are in our passage in Psalm 147, verse 2. We have both of these words, outcast and gather. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 4. Driven out is the word outcast. And of course, gather is there also in the verse. So these are semi-technical terms that are related to God's kingdom blessing on the Jews. Also in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12. There is a connection between the assembling of the outcasts. 
which is the same word as here, and the gathering of the dispersed ones of Judah. Uh, That verse says this. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And that's a messy, that's a kingdom. It's a messianic kingdom, a millennial kingdom passage. So verse two establishes the setting for the rest of this psalm. Placing everything that will be said from verse 3 to verse 20, placing it in the future, the future kingdom, when Israel is regathered back to the land. Okay, so this is a psalm that speaks of the kingdom, and it speaks of the kingdom in connection to the Lord establishing Jerusalem. Building it up and then populating it with the outcasts of Israel. He's going to gather back in all of those who have been driven out among the nations. We've seen that theme of driving out over and over again as we've looked at the uh, prophets. How the Lord says, I'm the one. I'm the one who has driven you out of the land. I did it. And I'm the one who will gather you back into the land. And so this is a kingdom uh, passage. All right. Well, man, look at there. Just about perfect timing. So um, that's all the Psalms that we're going to cover. Next week, we're starting on the Gospels. Okay. And um, you can look at you can look at it this way. Everything we've studied up to this point about the kingdom has all been so that when we get to the Gospels, we understand what Jesus teaches. Everything up to this point has been laying the groundwork. What does the Old Testament say? How does that inform us about what Jesus says? How should we interpret what Jesus says based upon what the Old Testament has said? How should we understand all this language associated with the kingdom in the New Testament? So if you don't. Well, I'll just make a flat statement. If you misunderstand, misinterpret the kingdom in the Gospels. It will mess up your soteriology, your, your doctrine of salvation and your doctrine of end times. It will it will mess it up. OK, and you'll start you'll start saying things that relate to what the Jews are required to do to enter the kingdom for their kingdom to be established. And what's required for salvation, you just mess, you'll mess it up. And next thing you know. When you do that, you're going to be including things that sound like works for salvation. You'll start teaching a work salvation. Anyway, I'll say more about that next week. Let me pray, and if you get any other questions about Psalms, I'll take those. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. We're thankful for your word, and we're thankful that we have the Holy Spirit to help us understand your word. And, uh, Lord, we, we understand 
at least we understand a little bit how important it is to pick up on some of these things in the Bible. And Lord, it's, it's so important that we study your word closely and uh, not just make these uh, big sweeping statements about uh, what your word says and moralizing it and just picking at things that we like and things that just jump off the page at us, but actually studying it closely because you are revealing so much and you have revealed in your word things to come. And so, Lord, we're thankful that we have Bibles in our hands that we can study. Help us to be diligent in our study. Lord, increase our desire to know and understand your word. Not just so we can have knowledge, head knowledge of it, but that because of what we know, it would increase our devotion to you and your son. And we pray in his name. Amen. Questions or comments?